0: good afternoon and welcome to digital transformation is your data actionable enough to lead the journey A health system cio media inc production sponsored by phillips just a little housekeeping before we get started my name is anthony guerra i'm the editor-in-chief of health system cio and i will be your moderator today We're looking forward to your participation. You can send your questions or comments in in the Q&A box as they occur to you, and we'll take them later in the program. And we're going to have a nice one-question poll later in the event. We'll give you a chance to respond, and then we'll have our panelists guess at the results, which is always fun. Nice way to view the screen today. Click in the top center, get it in side-by-side mode. Then you can adjust the divider to get the slides and the video boxes the size you want, and it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, we're going to go about 35 or 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Dr. Dick Taylor, Chief Clinical Informatics Officer with BJC Healthcare, Sri Bharadwaj, VP Digital Innovation with Franciscan Health, and Dr. Hirschgold, Clinical Affairs Lead Integrated Patient Management with Philips. So let's jump right in to our conversation. Um, Dick, let's start with you. You want
1: to give us an overview of your organization and your role? Sure. So I'm a Chief Clinical Informatics Officer for uh, the, it's, it's called Health Information Partners, which is the cooperative uh, agreement between uh, BJC Healthcare and Washington University in St. Louis that uh, runs the EMR and related applications. Um, I've uh, in, in that role. I oversee the EHR, uh, the Epic EHR. I also uh, um, participate as a clinical informatician in a uh, in a variety of settings and uh, try and oversee the uh, the bridge between uh, the human beings who are providers and clinicians and the the systems and the data they produce.
2: Excellent, Shri. Uh, this is Shri Bharadwaj, uh, Vice President Digital Innovation and Applications. Uh, my responsibility uh, is uh, is to manage all of the apps that we use, both clinical as well as uh, uh, from a digital perspective. We do a lot of digital work in the past few months, uh, and uh, actually has taken a lot of our physicians to a virtual mode. Uh, really helpful from a patient perspective while uh, taking care of physicians working from home. Uh, Franciscan Health, uh, based out of Indiana and uh, Illinois, uh, 14 hospital system with several clinics and several other uh, ancillary activities that we perform for our patients in these two states.
3: Very good, Hirsch. Thanks, Anthony. So I'm the Clinical Affairs Lead for Integrated Patient Management within Philips. We were previously called Medumo. We were a startup that Philips acquired last year in July of 2019. I see. My role is really making sure, you know, as a digital health company, that that patients are at the center of everything that we do. You know, Philips is obviously a global leader in healthcare, addressing a diverse set of needs spanning consumer, um, consumer and health system markets. So, you know, as a company, our goal is to improve the lives of three billion people by twenty thirty. So, that's what we're working on.
0: Very good. All right. First question how would you characterize the level of digital maturity at your organization? Do you consider data to be readily accessible, actionable, and sustainable? Shree, that's a tall order, but well, let's start with you.
2: So uh, when you talk about digital maturity, um, we achieved as a healthcare industry, some level of digital maturity when we started going into EMRs. However, Have we utilized that data to be really effective and actionable? That's a question that many, many people across the industry has been asking. We have spent considerable amount of time uh, in the past couple of years uh, optimizing our EMR solution and trying to pull data from it to make some actionable insight. We're getting there, Uh, we're getting to a lot of, uh, we created a few dashboards uh, I was just in a meeting a few hours ago talking about all of the inpatient dashboards we use today to manage, you know, um, ED uh, boarding process, a discharge process from the order state, uh, understanding what's happening with transport, uh, all of that stuff from an operational perspective. We have data today. We, we look at that data. We evaluate ourselves against other um, industry leaders and try to figure out how do we improve. That's on the one hand side. On the other hand side, to help with the physician side, we are trying to figure out how do we get that data into physician's hands. So for example, we use Epic. Um, if there is a possibility where you can take uh, some of the data we, through what we call slice advisor. It's, a, it's an Epic term, uh, where a physician can actually run their own reports, understand which patients truly, uh have fallen behind in terms of taking care of their wellness uh, capabilities or um, areas so we can at least uh, mass message them or help them through that process right that is where actionable insight really helps so bringing those two together what we see on the operational side in terms of managing the inpatient operations on the outpatient side, how do we help the physicians with the right information at the right time for them to take care of patients from a wellness perspective? Both of those are coming together. Now that's at a high level in terms of how we operate. Now, of course, we supply, we deliver in various forms, data to CDC, to other federal organizations, so on and so forth. We've been doing that for COVID-19 extensively through our data model, our data warehouse data model. Uh, we pull that data and go from there. But to tell you the truth, frankly, do you consider data to be readily accessible, actionable, sustainable? That's a pretty loaded question, I think. (laughs) Um, I mean, Anthony, you you know this, right? I mean, uh, readily accessible means I'd like to get it on my phone, I'd like to get it as a text, I'd like to get it as an Excel spreadsheet on my computer, I'd like to get it uh, through hyperspace on Epic, right? uh, That same data has to be available in multiple ways, right? Actionable means I should be able to get it when I can take action on it and when I'm sitting either in front of a patient or when I'm sitting in front of uh, an audience from an operational perspective, it has to be actionable so that I can make decisions based on it. The last part is the most difficult part. Sustainable. I could do this for a week, right? I could do this for four days. I could do it for 10 days. I could do it for two months. But is this sustainable for the long term? That's a much difficult question to answer. And that is what we, we term for us as adoption, right? We look at adoption as delivering that value that is again and again and again being utilized and sustained by those people who get the data in order to change the way they perform or act. That is where we, we struggle, uh, not just us as an organization or us as a single individual hospital in, in any hospitals you take, but as an industry, we struggle with that piece. We've got better because more and more people now have the virtual experience before they did not with COVID-19, blessing in disguise. Uh, there is a lot of data that's now people are reviewing and, and taking action on. Uh, we hope that this will sustain beyond this, this what I would call a, an episode in our lives. But I think we, this is definitely getting us to a right direction.
0: Just tell me a little bit more about this sustainability issue. So you're not saying that it's not sustainable because it's somehow manual and and therefore it's not sustainable. This is all automated. Are you saying it's not sustainable on the consumption side after COVID sort of dies down?
2: That's what I'm I'm seeing some aspects of it from a sustainable perspective, purely because uh, people might see value in it, but then once they get to start sitting in front of physicians, patients, or operational entities, there is going to be uh, some dilution, I want to call it, in, in the way they use it. They might still refer back to it, but it's not, it's not as, uh, as actionable at the point in time when it requires it. In fact, I wrote a white paper about a couple of years ago about actually how do you truly make actionable insight available to a physician? So for example, I'll, I'll give you a classic thing. A cardiologist who's seeing a patient really wants to know, right, what his immediate medications he's taking, what his hypertension situation was, if there's any, uh, you know, heart ailments, stuff like that, that he's been going through, blood pressure reading, so on and so forth. That is important for him at that time. If I show him, oh, this patient had a knee replacement six years ago that is not going to be actionable for him because he's a cardiologist by being that specialist, right? So when I look at actionable, I also have to look at the context and that is what is going to make the sustainability really, really be effective because we have data being thrown at us from the EMR, from all other uh, kind of avenues. We've got warehouses, we've got data lakes, we've got a bunch of things that we do. Truly, how do we make it actionable is snippets of data at the point when it is required to make sure it happens. When you go to a shop Amazon at the bottom, it gives you, hey, these are the other things that other people have bought, right? That's okay, that you can look at, and that may be actionable because you might want to buy something else that somebody bought at that time. That is actionable. Can that be sustained? Yes, in a, in a shopping kind of an environment that can be sustained. Are we going to sustain that through, after this epidemic, after this process, that's a that's a question we still have to wait to answer. Very interesting,
0: Dick. Um, what are your thoughts on the question or anything Sri said?
1: So, a couple of things. Um, first of all, in terms of uh, organizational data maturity, um, that's a it's kind of a loaded question because everybody has their own way of assessing it. What I would say is that uh, we, like a lot of organizations, have pockets of relatively uh, mature data usage and data acquisition. And we have pockets where we have a lot of opportunity. Um, I would characterize the health system in this country overall as striving to be data-driven, but not necessarily achieving it. Um, Actionability, and and, uh, she's right, context matters. The relevance to the particular uh, consumer matters. Um, Even more than that, it needs to be accurate and it needs to be timely. Timeliness of the data, I think, is something that people are are uh, not necessarily uh, considering when they talk about, for example, measurement against benchmarks or measurement against national standards. Uh, When you're trying to say, look, is our organization, our our multi-billion dollar healthcare organization uh, data-driven? A lot of times what we're saying is, how did we do last year? And are we trying to do better this year? And one of the major challenges for us is to tighten that loop to say, look, never mind how I did last year, tell me how I did yesterday and tell me how I did on things that matter to me. So not just uh, you know, my overall patient satisfaction goals, but how many people had to wait to see their doctor yesterday? And how long did they have to wait? And was it an even distribution or do I have a few outliers? And that kind of thing then can feed back into data-driven adjustments that are more likely to be effective and, and, and sustained. The sustainability question that Sri brings up is really important you know, even if you bring data to a constituency, um, whether or not they use it is their choice. And uh, and a physician, physicians are extraordinarily good, in my experience, at um, avoiding doing things that they don't see as a value add. And uh, that particularly relates to decision support, to, um, you know, answering questions that somebody else thinks they should answer. Um, one of the keys here is not simply how the, data is used, is used, but how it's produced. So what are the clinical processes? What are the, the provider-driven or clinician-driven processes that produce the data that we're then trying to feed to a provider? Because uh, to, to Sri's uh, point, if I tell a, a, a uh, cardiologist that a patient had a knee replacement six years ago, um, that's irrelevant. If I tell a cardiologist that a patient had a knee replacement six years ago and the patient didn't have a knee replacement six years ago, because somebody miscoded a procedure, that's not just irrelevant, it's actually mm. harmful. Mm. And uh, we, we have a huge data quality problem, not because the data itself is not stored faithfully or reproduced faithfully, but because the processes that enter the data and the processes that produce the data are of low reliability. And we re- need to acknowledge that and understand it. So uh, uh, that, yep. that's, that, yeah, that's, that's kind of my, my take on, on that.
0: Dick, can you talk a little bit more about, you mentioned these pockets of quality data. I think that's an interesting concept. Um, You talked about the importance of data being entered properly, and I'm assuming that where you do have pockets, you are getting that. You're getting data entered properly. Everyone seems to care more about the data. That makes them more conscientious about putting it in which makes better data coming out, which it's almost a loop, right? The data is, is more consumed. The data is better consumed. People take more care about it, and it's a loop. But when you identify a pocket of data, is it like anything else? Do you study that area and say, well, what are they doing right? And how do we expand that pocket?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And even more than that, um, what are we doing to keep that data good? So part of the sustainability of, of a data model is is understanding who's curating and who cares. Um, if, if nobody is assessing the accuracy of the data, it's almost, certainly, it's almost certain to be inaccurate. Um, entropy always wins. Um, and the only way to get away from that is to say, look, um, how do we know if it's wrong? And who's correcting it? Um, a good example of that is, um, is procedure coding. In an environment where you are doing, uh, where you do owned risk and you code the procedures in order to have an accurate past surgical history, you have inaccuracies in the past surgical history. And we've seen this in large numbers, largely because you drive from things like what was scheduled as opposed to what was done. Nobody goes back after a procedure and says, oh, by the way, we did this additional thing. Um, If you are in a fee-for-service environment, not that I'm claiming that fee-for-service is better. But you have a direct financial interest in making sure that w- what's in the record is exactly what was done and as a result you have people whose whole job is to make sure that that piece of the of the record is accurate um one of the great things about about uh, owned risk and the the uh, uh HCC, the hierarchical condition condition coding that we put down for medicare advantage is that we are now actually saying, look, let's make sure the problem list is right. Let's make sure that the provider has an accurate view of what's going on with the patient. It's financially driven, but ultimately, yeah, somebody has got to care. And the somebody that's got to care has got to, got to have a, a, an avenue to correct the data as well as a lot of interest in making sure the data is right.
0: Yeah, so it's a financial interest in making sure everything's in there, but also a, a liability interest in making sure nothing's extra that isn't supposed to be in there because we don't want to get paid for things we're not doing. So you really want to get it accurate. So that's a good point. Um, Hirsch, Hirsch, your comments on uh, lots of things been said or the question on the screen.
3: Yeah, I think uh, what Sri and Dick have already said is, is, is spot on. I think to add to that or or to maybe um, expand on it. So I definitely agree that you see these pockets of success, right? So that could be for a specific service line where you're able to really understand and quantify that procedure or service line in terms of what the outcomes you want to achieve are and even what the costs are. And so then you're able to, to dig into that and really understand that and have digital maturity at, at the service line level, for example, or at the procedure level. I think broadly, when you well, firstly, I should also say digital maturity, when I think about it, I think about two main things the ability for personalization you know to the individual patient and then for the data to be prescriptive or as Sri said and dick expanded on actionable and so again across the board i, I don't think we have that generally yet we have it in pockets um, and so there, there's a lot of work to do there and models like you know Hims's adoption and maturity models Will allow us to have a framework for understanding how we can achieve that and how we can standardize that. And then I think another thing that I think about with regard to sustainability um, is, is, is another side of that sustainability piece is, you know, how are we going to build the infrastructure, all the data warehouses to store this data? So when you look in the, you know, digital economy more broadly, let's just say outside of healthcare, a lot of ways the the patient is the product, or sorry, the individual and their information is the product. And in healthcare, you know, that's not going to be the case. Um, and so, whereas in the digital economy, because that's the case, you can you can monetize that and use that to fund everything. Whereas in healthcare, we need to figure out how we're going to to sustain the digital infrastructure when the patient is not the product.
0: Very good. Excellent. Okay, Uh, Dick, we're going to go with you first on this question. What impact has COVID-19 had on your digital transformation progress? Did the changes required exacerbate data challenges? So did it make it tougher?
1: Yeah, so couple of things. First of all, COVID-19, I think, taught organizations like ours just how fast we could move if we had to. Um, we we accomplished major organizational changes, major facility structural changes down to, you know, reconfiguration of rooms, reconfiguration of the EHR, uh, new reports, new, uh, new medicine um, at breakneck speed. And so I think it taught us that we could be fast. And you have actually seen a, st- a tremendous increase in disorganization. In, uh, in the number of agile projects, the number of projects where we try immediately to deliver value and then refine as we go, um, I think that uh, the age of, of, of paralysis by analysis has been replaced with an age of, of try it and see, and that's tremendous. Um, we had a lot of data challenges around COVID and, of course, partly it was that we were trying to understand from the very first who had it and what did they have and how were they doing. Um, and uh, we evolved a very strong uh, informatics group within what we call the Center for Clinical Excellence, which is a, a part of BJC that focuses particularly on uh, clinical transformation. And, uh, and that group, uh, I, the unsung epidemiologic heroes, uh, really produced tremendous data from the very beginning. Um, and we did have a lot of those things I talked about. So when a patient comes in and they says, I think, they say, I think I have COVID, do we count them as COVID or not? Do we, if, we're doing, if we're taking tests and we're testing everybody with symptoms but nobody without symptoms, we initially called testing a proxy for COVID. You know, if you're waiting on the results of a COVID test, we assume you have COVID. Well, when we start screening asymptomatic individuals, all of a sudden that goes out the window. And so we've shifted data definitions a dozen times. We've got different testing methodologies. We've got different testing data. All that stuff comes back in. You know, it lands in the in the data shop as what on earth do we do with this homogeneous or the, sorry, this heterogeneous, this uh, almost uh, balkanized data that's coming out? And how do we present a unified view of the data to our epidemiologists so they understand whether we're winning or losing in the fight against a deadly disease? Um, and that was uh, that also happened very quickly. I think the big data challenges, of course, are now, are now beginning to come to the fore because it's how do you practice all of the medicine that you normally practice? We're a quaternary care referral center. We do everything. Um, how do, how do uh, we support that from a data view while still supporting COVID? While st- while, uh, and, of course, the, the uh, financial challenges that hit our organization as well as every other um, during the middle of, of the, uh, the COVID lockdowns. Then, sort of added that extra degree of difficulty because suddenly we were doing it with reduced staff and doing it with an increased focus on making every penny count. Um, I think we're much stronger than we moved a great deal in digital transformation as a result of COVID nineteen. I, you know, I I, Shri's side comment that this was this was uh, you know uh, uh, in some ways a hidden hidden blessing. I wouldn't go back, and I don't want to go back to those days. But I will say that uh, that the uh, overall uh, COVID nineteen has has supercharged our digital transformation.
2: Excellent, Sri. Yeah, I, I I just want us to take a little bit back. So I don't know, Anthony. You know Bill Spooner, right? The yes. CIO CIO was from Sharp Healthcare. He you yep. wrote an article uh, in, with Ahima about you know. Uh, the need for EHRs and what they do to help with stage one, stage two, or something like that. And, I, and, I, and he was talking about one thing that I, it resonated with me a long time ago. It's about quality, right? Quality of reporting, quality of data, quality of healthcare, how we can change it. What we found was that the uh, COVID-19 uh, has, has definitely had a digital transformation in some way, shape, or form uh, whether we like it or not i'll tell you why we have now started looking at the healthcare industry has started taking looking at a uh, number of covid patients how is it impacting by state how is it impacting my county how is it impacting my hospital how is it impacting my patients how is it impacting my census? think about it right we never bothered about looking at this information nationally for anything ever right We looked at flu, but that was like, eh, no big deal. Flu is not such a big deal. COVID-19 has really forced us to look at data. Whether we like it or not, that's a reality which we face today, right? And that really forced us as an industry to look at transformation and look at how are we going to take that data and make effective use. I'll give you another example. When we started looking at about three months ago, I think, yeah, May, June timeframe, we started looking at expansion of beds in the hospital. We started looking at triage capabilities. We really had to go back to the data and understand what the trends were looking like. That caused transformation. That caused us to think through how we are going to do this, not for today, but based on past information. we we now started looking at information that we needed in order to evaluate where we are going. So that definitely required uh, required us to think differently and also showed us we have gaps. Very importantly, we have large gaps in how we collect data, how we utilize the data and how we use that data to look at making informed decisions. That is a huge, I think, eye opener for a lot of us. Not just us, as in Franciscan, but as a, as a as a. If you look at it right, when I when I look at what we see in the everyday news, we see that there are gaps. And then when California reported, well, they don't know if they truly reported the right numbers. There was a question, right? It was all over the place. I mean, it's like we rely on data now to make decisions. But if we found that there were gaps, that truly cost us to rethink how we look at data. So my point will be is that COVID-19 has not just had an impact. I think it is transformational in a way that we will start looking at how we did or what did we do. Not now, five years down the line, we will look at this data, Anthony, trust me, we will and say, Mm -hmm. hey, how did we do this then? Because we went through this event in our lives. How do we do this? What data do we look for? How do we get this done? That thing is going to transform the way healthcare looks at data completely. Wow, big yeah. stuff, big stuff. Hirsch? Oh, I'm
0: sorry, wow. Dick,
1: did you wanna jump in? I just wanted to really, really quickly one, one second, comment, Hirsch. comment briefly. Um, that, uh, that I agree, I think the other thing that we learned, not just gaps, but we learned what we could or couldn't trust from outside data. So again, um look learning when things are reported learning uh, that we could trust our hospital admission data but we probably couldn't trust death data because the deaths are, are sometimes greatly delayed learning more about about the inputs so i really i really agree with what, what you said we're going to look, be looking at this for years for insights very good Hirsch.
3: yeah you know when you look across the industry there's no doubt that uh, COVID 19 has accelerated digital transformation um you know there there are some very practical reasons for that. For example, you know the need to socially distance, right? And and so in the context of social distancing, in the context of when elective uh, appointments and procedures were being canceled, there was a need to be able to continue to deliver care, to continue and do to do what we need to be doing, which is diagnosing and treating patients. So that forces us to look at well, how can we continue to do that? And, and digital technologies enable that. And of course, you know, the only reason we're able to do that right now is because over the last several decades, we've now developed the technologies to have that capability. So, you know, it's absolutely accelerated all of these digital elements. And then it's been supported by some of the legislation that has occurred to reimbursement around being able to deliver digital care. So, you know, I remember attending, you know, a uh, you know, forum almost ten years ago on telehealth, and the question was, well, why isn't there still uptake? And it was the same answer that we've been getting over the last few years, which is that you know, reimbursement wasn't aligned yet; people weren't getting paid for it. And so we're starting to see some some really important and significant movement there. And then the the second part of the question for exacerbating data challenges, you know, when I look at um, our own. Um, patient management platform and what we're doing, we're seeing an increased demand in these types of in, in services that we deliver, right? And there's a need to develop new features, you know, supporting contactless um, care and check-in processes. And so one, one specific example is, you know, we're looking, okay, how do we um, allow for a virtual waiting room so that patients can come, check in, they don't have to congregate in a physical waiting room. And so what we're seeing is, challenge, you know, kind of the same challenges, but it's, well, how do you still maintain the privacy of the patient, right, but be able to inform the care team that the patient has arrived, that they're ready to be seen? You know, and the answer, of course, is being able to connect the data on the back end so that you're not collecting uh sensitive information directly from the patient but it you know it just highlights these these challenges that we face specifically in healthcare.
0: Excellent, very good. All right, Shri, we're going to go first with you on this with the dramatic increase in virtual care and the continued consumerization of healthcare in what ways have you re- redefined patient engagement as part of your informatics
2: strategy? Uh This is actually a fantastic question. Um, I think we've we've transformed the way we think about virtual care. Uh, Our investments for the future are more geared towards patient engagement. Uh, Our uh, informatics strategy is actually completely turned upside down for us to look at what we do with the patients um, and how are we looking at the data effectively to make sure we can manage the patient uh, better. Uh, give you one classic, uh, remote patient monitoring. Um, that is, that is becoming a requirement now because we know patients are going to be at home. Uh, we ship devices to them and uh, we are pulling data again from those devices. That data is going to drive how we are going to treat those patients. Was that part of our informatics strategy? No. Was that part of how we said we would do? How would we take care of patients? Would we even, in, you know, in, in five years ago, would we even have thought about the fact that, oh, I'm going to make determination of patient's condition based on data that I get from them from home? That was not even contemplated, right? Now, we are looking at, I mean, several physicians today are looking at that data and having that conversation with their patients. now. If I take that and and expose the virtual care capability through a video visit, so for example, if I see a continuously high blood pressure, um, you know, reading from a patient coming from home, I'm seeing a trend, right? Now I can say, okay, I need to intervene and talk to a patient. There's something going wrong here that I can do that. Was I able to do that years ago? No. Was I even contemplating that I would do that? No. There were pockets of expertise. Dr. Topol uh, did, did this in San Diego. He found a patient. He was able to administer um, uh, blood pressure medication. He got the results from him and was able to tone down his um, uh, medications to suit the the patient's needs because sometimes the uh, patient would go under low pressure capabilities, right? So is that something we would look at is that, is that something we would have considered? No, we are doing it today. This is something we have redefined how we are going to engage with patients. Now, not just the data coming from RPM, but data coming from the um, fitness uh, capabilities he has had, uh, amount of exercise he is doing. Uh, we have fitness centers where our patients go and, and um, exercise. We use that data effectively. We have uh you know relationship with other fitness centers where we can pull the data from. Uh, we can get data from DME, we can get data from nursing homes, we can get data from home health. Bring it all together. Now you have this, you know, we've been talking about it, right? The longitudinal care record for the patient and try to figure out how do we get data. 85% or 90% of the data of, of health is outside of healthcare system, right? We we talk about this. It, this is what is going to change that. This is something that will help us. And then coming to one more thing that's happening beginning November 2nd, if they don't change the date, is the, mm-hmm. the 21st Century uh, Patient Cures Act, right? That 21st that, that, that Century Cures Act is also going to look at that data that we need to expose that data, not hold it within ourselves, right? Information blocking. That is something that we will have to do And that will also be another transformational aspect to this consumerization. Now a patient can say, look, I want you to share my data with Apple because I rely on Apple to give me more information about the trending that's happening in my life. That is going to change the way we think. That is gonna change the way we perform. If we do this right, and we we have a history uh, we can talk about, but uh, if we do this right, if we get this right, then we'll be able to look at information blocking as a enabler to improve patient engagement rather than a difficult aspect that we are going through, especially if you're going to be sharing physicians' notes through open notes in their MyChart or patient portal.
1: Very good, Sri Dick. So I, I would say um, several things. First of all, um, uh, uh, Hirsch talked about uh you know seeing movement in virtual care virtual care for us virtually overnight became a quarter of our business it was a it was a stunning change and uh it, you know taking that to scale um taking the the uh, you know having to have the ability to see people without seeing them was a was a huge change and frankly a, a very good one a very welcome one um i would say i would agree with shri that the uh that patient engagement um, has changed completely, in that we now view uh, patient engagement through digital technology as absolutely a standard part of what we do. Um, we do. We, we are also looking at remote patient monitoring. We're also looking at uh, at how we uh, how we reach patients in a variety of settings and circumstances. Um, even more than that, we're we're saying, okay, how are we uh, how are we changing medical care? Uh, because again informatics ranges from data to the care that produces the data. And how are we documenting differently? How are we uh, referring differently? How are we um, looking at conditions where we might have said before? Well, you need to come in and see us. But now what we're saying is, okay, let's try some things at home. Let's try sending some care to you. Let's uh, uh," and as we do that, we, we dispatch that digitally, we uh, view the data from it digitally, um, we are also um, I think coming more to terms w- with the limits on that you know places where no sorry we can 't give you a joint injection in your home we 're going to have to bring you <laughs> facility uh, you know we 're not going to take the the uh, linear accelerator to your home to give you to give you uh, proton therapy, um, but as we do, how do we deal with you before and after in a way that leaves you engaged, not just a victim of the technology but actually a participant in your own care? And that, that's something that, that we've really doubled down on. Um, we've uh, gone from taking patient engagement as, okay, how many people have signed up for my chart this, this month? to, well, you have to sign up for my chart because if you don't, we can't take care of you properly. So, how do we take care of you properly? There will always be people who are unable to or unwilling to participate in digital healthcare to, to that degree. That's fine. We will see patients in person forever. Medicine is a transactional arrangement where we see you in person, we will be generating more data in the in the clinic then than in your home. But for the patients who want it, and I think it's the majority of, and patients is a funny word, but for our, our customers, for our clients who want it, um, we're going to be engaging with them far more broadly and far more uh, collaboratively than we ever have in the past.
0: Excellent, Hirsch.
3: Yeah, I mean, we're seeing it across the board with our with our customers that um, patient engagement is an increasingly important aspect of their digital, you know, strategy or informatic strategy. I mean, one very practical example is that through COVID nineteen, there's just been a need to be able to directly communicate with patients in ways that they are going to interact with meaning you know text messaging emails you know all of the things that that we're using today in in large part to communicate Um, you know historically in, in medical informatics i think that we were looking at digitizing data and ensuring access to it and so i think it's just a logical extension to say, well, how do we address some of the big, or or attempt to address some of the biggest problems in healthcare by leveraging digital technology? So, you know, when I was in the hospital, there was nothing more powerful than a patient who was engaged and activated in their own care. You know, if you saw a patient who knew what their condition was, knew how to manage it, it made all the difference in the world. And, you know, you wanted to see, well, how can you ensure that every patient, you know, has that, same, same type of framework. Now, technology is not going to solve that, but it can be a medium and a mode to help us, you know, bring patients on board, help them understand, you know, their condition and get them participating in their care. Um, I think that that's, you know, hugely important. So um, COVID-19 has also accelerated that.
0: All right. Very good. I want to throw out the audience poll I'm- um, hopefully we get some uh, some on each side, but I think I may be wrong on this one. Um, dealing with COVID-19 has sped up the digital transformation process. Let's see if anyone disagrees with that. I try and think of things where it will be, you know, a little in the middle, but I think I blew it on this one. Let's see if anyone dis- – don't just disagree for, you know, to do that. All right, out there, just be honest if you really disagree. So um, let's go back here. I do want to talk about – um, AI a little bit so um, Dick I want to go with you first on this one while people are answering the poll sure. what are what are some of the ways in which AI or other enabling technologies are helping advance digital maturity and integrated care delivery in your organization
2: I was wondering how come you didn't put an AI in this thing I'm
3: like come on <laughs> it's, yeah. in there.
2: it's in there this data AI. has to be in there man. Yes. come on okay ahead so,
1: please let's talk about ai um and and first of all i want to acknowledge that ai machine learning and, and and ai have been promising uh dramatic transformation of healthcare uh in the next five years for at least the past 20 years uh, which, <laughs> which is to say um this is a this has proven to be a very hard technology to use broadly now we've got narrow successes and, and the narrow successes are things like image processing for digital pathology uh, some of the natural language processing around radiology reports. There are places where we've reported it. Um, what we're really trying to do in AI, and this is certainly uh, a research focus of the university that I, that I work in, um, is to broaden that and to say, look, how do we apri- apply AI models and AI, uh, AI concepts to broader sections of the population, to individuals with uh, more ubiquitous diseases, and uh, And then how do we uh, but even more than that, how do we deliver it? I think the biggest change that we're seeing is is that we're looking now at more sophisticated ways of delivering the insights to the provider um, AI is a is primarily you know something where you where you run algorithms against a very large mountain of data and then you say okay well it seems like this is happening it seems like this patient has has sepsis it seems like this patient has a very high chance for mortality in the next 30 years or 30 the next 30 days um, and hmm. that should drive some care decisions but then what we've discovered from an informatics perspective is that when we pop up an alert that says this patient may have sepsis what we get is uh is we rapidly teach physicians to ignore the alert and it 's because the alert is neither terribly sensitive nor terribly specific, and it suffers more on specificity than sensitivity. We had a, a detection program uh, i will I will not say where I was when we did this, but it successfully detected about twenty of every uh, of every one sepsis cases and uh, The problem with that is that when nineteen are false positive and one is true positive, you learn to ignore everything. Um, AI has had the noise problem for a long time, and I think we 're beginning to understand how we can nudge rather than force, how we can avoid breaking the physician workflow, how we can decorate the screen in useful ways. Those are the things AI has always had promise, but it's always been challenged because of the, the lack of understanding of the cognitive processes that we're trying to affect. That is the provider and the patient, getting back to patient outreach. You know, frankly, if the patient has a, has a, a uh, 10% chance of all cause mortality in the next 30 days, that's probably something we need to figure out how to put in front of the patient or their or their, their proxy as well, um, because the conversations are going to be about palliative care and about uh, limiting care in those final days. Um, those are good times to sit down and understand how we're engaging with patients digitally, how we're doing it in a combined way, and then how we, how we inform the provider without getting in their way. We've made a lot of progress. We've got a long way to go.
0: Very good, Sri.
2: Uh, AI, uh, you know, uh a lot of promise. AI, I, I wouldn't say AI is digital noise. Uh, AI is being utilized uh, in several areas. I mean, I, I can give you a classic uh, example where it's been utilized effectively is imaging, right? Uh, where you are allowing the system to study images over and over and over again, build up that algorithm and give you the right information that with some a random eye could skip. That. Is a good use of AI. That is where we've seen some utilization of those technologies where you can use those algorithms, machine learning to actually help build this together. Now, is that going to become mainstream? Is that it could influence some of what our vendors provide to us. It could influence some of what our uh, patients might see in the future in their phones, right? Uh, I mean, read through the veins and give you the information you need, Uh, possibly. And tell you if there is possible scope for uh, you developing an infection. That definitely is possible, but is that going to become mainstream, delivered every day to the physician's hand, so that they could kind of get killed by uh, the alert noise? Right. That Mm. is not good. That's not going to happen. I mean, that that's not going to help. That's not going to be acceptable to physicians either. We rely on our physicians to give us the care. We teach them how to help us get better care and that's what we do. They will be able to use these technologies if they repeatedly use that uh, data and uh, build out those mechanisms. So if this is something that we do, we have to do this along with them, help them understand it, help them build it with us so then they can utilize it effectively. That's That's where we will look at AI or other enabling technologies. That will give us definitely the maturity we need. And, uh, you know, integrated care is something that we are looking at, especially if you're looking at MSSP or uh, an ACO. Uh, that information is very useful for that kind of an organization, which we, which we do. Um, and uh, we, we are using some of these technologies today to look at uh, patterns in the population health, uh, patterns in what's happening with a specific type of patient population, uh, especially with comorbidities and stuff like that, that is where you can use these technologies effectively. Very good, Hirsch.
3: Yeah, you know, I think you see in AI, Sri brought up uh, in imaging, you know, the ability to train um, on, you know, radiological images and improve our capabilities there. You see them in symptom checkers, um, triaging patients as well. And I think when you think, uh, when you look at the, you know, digital maturity and you talk about the definition of that, um, I think AI theoretically will uh, be a significant aspect to enable that, right? Um, But we're definitely not there. Uh, We see it in little pockets. Um, And I think that we should, you know, personally think that we should focus on some of the more foundational aspects of informatics and digital technologies first. You know, for example, making our technologies more standardized, making them more, you know, interoperable. Um, for example, you know, when you think about HL seven and and data flows between um, EMRs and, and other systems, there's there's so much ways to go to make those most more standardized that will um, help enable Better patient care, better ability to access data. So I think those some of those more practical aspects of of informatics are, are probably what we should focus on, and then use AI, continue to build it out in these pockets where we where we, um, you know, I think have a stronger hypothesis that it can be efficacious, and and over time build it out in that fashion. Um, another way that you do see it is is using. Uh, natural language processing for for patient communications and and these sorts of things, um, but I think it will be key to to uh, establishing digital maturity in the longer term.
0: Very good. All right, uh, to our audience, Paul. I'm not going to have everyone guess for the sake of time because uh, we're a little boring today. Hundred percent agree with that. I really, I really blew it. I like to make it more interesting than that. But um, so there's no question. About the effect, and what Shri said before about uh, how we'll look back on this as a real inflection point, uh, historically speaking, uh, probably in many many ways, you know, healthcare, IT, and beyond. Very interesting. Um, question from the audience from our friend Bill Spooner, Shri, who you referenced. He's on the oh, line. Oh, he's on the line. Uh, Jeez. Yeah, he's on the line. So we have. Uh, uh, let me read. Thanks, Shri, for the shout out. A bit of an off the wall question. Dick Taylor has done some great work in addressing the opioid crisis. So this is up his alley, but I'd like to hear from both Dick and Shri. There have been many reports of increasing incidence of overdose interventions during the pandemic. To what extent have you been able to use your digital health tools to support those dealing with addiction? And what successes can you report? So uh, Shri, why don't you go first?
2: Okay, so this is something that we, you know, we have seen some increase in behavioral health. Uh, capabilities that we needed to provide to our patients, not just uh, not just from a, a, a taking care of the patient perspective, but actually looking at it longer term. Uh, we've seen some um, patients uh, taking to more uh, difficult terms because of the way uh, they are secluded from society. Uh, we are seeing some trend in those patients now coming to us with, uh, with some challenges that they're facing today. Uh, that has definitely increased our our outlook towards how we are going to care for these patients, for sure. Now, have we truly seen, I've not run the numbers yet, have we truly seen an increase in opioid use? I have not. I, I don't have a clear answer yet, but I can tell you right now that if we look at opioid use, as a way for this country to get out of what we are doing today, there is going to be a lot of opioid use right now. Behavioral health, um, some sort of pain that people are going through, will get through this process. But I'm thinking that we, if we make a concerted effort, will be able to bring down usage. And I, I know a PMNR doc who's a very good friend of mine. Um, she always talks about it's not because the patient doesn't know what else to do it's because we help the patient assume that if they take a specific drug they will get better it's also part of the healthcare system as well so if we if we look at that as a model then opioid use and drug abuse can definitely be contained effectively very good dick
1: Yeah, so uh, we've certainly seen an increase in our in our region, in uh, opioid uh, overdoses in uh, use of opioid rescue. Um, I think the use of rescue is good. I think it's a it's a way of reducing harm. But this has been a very stressful time for a lot of people. And a lot of folks who were maybe getting by um, with their opioid dependence um, have now uh, reached a point where they're they're frankly dysfunctional with it. Um, And we know that we're we're from an IT standpoint, from a from an informatic standpoint, we're trying to provide more services uh, digitally, more services virtually. We're doing uh, telemedicine consults between facilities. So, if we need a, a psychiatric uh, consultation in one facility and we have a, a mental health provider in a different one, we're looking at uh, televideo uh, telemedicine consults. Um, we're looking at a variety of ways to support our uh, both the, the, the patients who are opioid addicted, uh, suffer from opi- opioid use disorder, but also individuals who are simply, uh, they have chronic pain. And a lot of our chronic pain patients had trouble because they couldn't get in to be seen because the, the challenges with electronic prescribing of controlled substances are such that many of them were still dependent on getting a piece of paper every month. And those things caused, uh, you know, again, caused c- c- compromises in care. Um, I wish I could report really great results from all of this work that we're doing, but frankly, it's too early. Um, we're, we're actually seeing uh, psychiatric and psychological stressors increase rather than de- decrease at mm-hmm. this point. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, I would have to say that at, at this point, we're doing everything we can do. And I don't feel that we're, we're uh, leaving a lot of stones unturned, but I think that uh, we're, gonna be, we're we're going to be looking back on this period next year with retrospective data saying, okay, how did we really do with respect to these patients? Um, it is it is a major challenge for us. And Bill and I have worked together, and, and the opioid use uh, task force, the opioid uh, task force from CHIME uh, has been very active in this area. Um, it's probably too early to tell how successful we're being, although I at least feel like we're doing what we can do.
2: Yeah, I think uh, the second part of the question, Bill, is uh... – uh, have, we, uh, have you been able to use digital health tools? Definitely we have. In fact, yep. we have a tele-neuro, uh, capability in the ED right now, yes. uh, yep. which we extensively use uh, for those kinds of patients. So definitely uh, we've been able to use technology in this area extensively for us, uh, not just us as, a, as an institution, but also we have been able to work with several physicians uh, on uh, clinical trials and stuff like that, that will really help as well. So uh, your question is spot on. We just have to figure out how do we continue these successes going forward? That is something that we are, I can tell you struggling now, uh, struggling with right now. We'll, we'll, we'll hope to have an answer, but, uh, and then the patients are fine with, with when they were COVID going to say, you know what, I don't want to get in the hospital. I'd like to see my doc remotely, that's fine. Is that sustainable? Is that something we'll continue to do? Uh, I don't know yet. All right. Well,
0: Hirsch, we're we're just about out of time, but I want to give you an opportunity for a final thought on, uh, you can either address uh, what we've just been talking about or any sort of overall comments to, to take us out today.
3: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think uh, maybe some overall comments on some challenges that I think uh, we should be looking at and thinking about. Um, and it's the idea that we should, in my, in my view, look at informatics, you know, digital maturity, artificial intelligence, not as their own self-contained goals or self-contained end goals, but rather as a tool to enable a more healthy society, right? And so it's really about thinking about, well, what does it mean to have a better health system or what does it mean to have healthier patients and a healthier society, Um, You know, one example that I can think of is in, you know, working in the hospital and you see I spent a lot of time documenting in front of the computer. Right. And so in many instances, more than I was able to be at the bedside. And so I think some of the things that we should be looking at is how can we enable digital technologies not to increase that time, but reduce it. Right. And so that actually has to be an intentional way or an intentional view that we have as we design these technologies. So, again, using informatics as an enabler and not an end goal.
0: Excellent. Well, that's about all we had time for today Uh, regarding continuing education. You could use the final slide in this deck. You'll get an email when the on demand recording uh, of this event is uh, is ready for viewing. You're going to be – you've got a URL in the chat box right now for a post-event survey. Um, That'll open automatically when you close your window today. So if you could take a moment and answer the survey, short four-question survey about how you uh, enjoyed today's webinar, um, that would be great. We'd appreciate it. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team and you can go to our website to register for what our upcoming events. So with that, I wanna thank our excellent panel, excellent conversation today, Dr. Dick Taylor, Shri Bharadwaj and Dr. Hirsch Gohl. And I wanna thank Phillips for making this conversation possible and our attendees for joining. With that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you.